0: Greetings, and welcome back to the Highest Court Report. I'm your host, Connor. Thank you for joining me. If you recall, we were going to discuss an interesting case on the SCOTUS docket that had to do with climate change. And to be certain, we are going to address more and more of Biden's massive government expansion programs and the Supreme Court's de facto veto power over them. However, given the sad state of affairs in law enforcement in the past week, and frankly, the last year, uh, all over the country, I wanted to discuss the nature in which the Supreme Court approaches homicide by cop, excessive force, and the like. I think this is an appropriate time to discuss it, given the Chauvin trial that's uh, that's happening right now, and uh, the recent um, murder of a 20-year-old unarmed black man. I realize this is a sensitive issue, so disclaimer, there may be a mention of violence and murder in this episode. Listener discretion advised. Anyways, let's get into it. This is Episode 8, An Advantage of Vagueness. In the early weeks of the Chauvin trial, technically more than one week into the murder trial of the former Minneapolis police officer for the killing of George Floyd, Chauvin's lawyer read an excerpt from the department's manual governing the use of force by police. Quote, the reasonableness of a particular use of force, the manual stated, quote, must be judged from the perspective of the reasonable officer on the scene, rather than with the 2020 vision of hindsight, end quote. Minneapolis revised this manual after Floyd's death, to be sure, in order to place clearer and, and tighter constraints on officers engaged in the use of force. Nevertheless, the vague rule laid out in the variety of the manual that was utilized during Floyd's fatal encounter with Chauvin is honestly archetypal of the guidance offered to officers in the field writ large. Whether it is well known or not, most police departments derive their policies governing the use of force from a Supreme Court case entitled Graham v. Connor. Graham is a 1989 Supreme Court case that essentially established the modern constitutional landscape for the police and its excessive form claims. The language Chauvin's lawyer read from the police manual was lifted, word for word, from the court's verdict in Graham. Authored by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, one of the chief exponents of a sort of tough-on-crime approach that often animated the court's decisions during his tenure, the Graham opinion cautions that police accused of excessive force frequently have to make difficult decisions in highly stressful situations. In determining whether an officer acted reasonably, Rehnquist wrote for his court, quote, the calculus of reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. About the, ma- about the manner and amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. End quote. To be certain, this is often cited, this, this passage here from Rehnquist's uh, majority decision is often cited in cases where a police officer is cited for excessive force. Perhaps even more pointedly, Graham left cops with modest guidance on just what kinds of limits the Constitution actually places on use of force by police. As the then University of Virginia law professor, William Stuntz wrote six years after Graham was handed down, quote, one searches in vain for any body of case law that gives Graham's vague reasonable standard some content, End quote. Yet, while some academics did criticize Graham's approach early on, Many prominent commentators outside of the academic world only recently have started to think of Graham as a a rather large wrong turn by the Supreme Court. Though three justices joined a partial dissent by Justice Harry Blackmun that criticized some parts of Rehnquist's decision, all nine justices agreed with most of Rehnquist's reasoning and ruling. That includes Justice Thurgood Marshall, the legendary and prolific civil rights lawyer. But with the benefit of hindsight, and of empirical evidence showing that clear legal rules always lead to better policing, Graham now looks like a serious blunder by the court. It does little, in other words, to advise police on how they can avoid conduct that might unnecessarily injure or kill a criminal suspect. Now, it's unlikely that clearer rules would have saved George Floyd's life, to be sure. As Minneapolis Police Chief Madeira Arredondo testified at Chauvin's trial, Chauvin quote absolutely, end quote, violated department policy when he knelt on Floyd's neck after Floyd was already subdued and handcuffed in a prone position. However, it should be noted that clear rules can ensure that cops thrown into dangerous and sometimes uncertain situations can fall back on those rules rather than making a potentially deadly decision with only their fear to guide them. Now, to be fair, the profession of policing, uh, statistically speaking, is not even in the top 10 as far as actually quantifying the danger of it. However, uh, especially Republican pundits like to note on the danger of it and and, uh, equate it often to serving their country like um, the military does. I don't want to get into a punditry uh, discussion about this here. However, Oftentimes, um, you know, this is the debate that police unions have about the safety of their police officers' lives and the nature in which they are trained to use their firearms. Back to the case. Graham was correct about one thing, however. Officers do sometimes find themselves in, quote, tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving, end quote, encounters where they have to make quick decisions about how to use force. However, if we want these officers to make the right choice in these fraught moments, in these difficult moments, the police departments need to provide them with clear guidance on how they should react. And the Supreme Court's vague, reasonablest standard does nothing of the sort. In other words, clear rules can save lives, and often do. Now, this assertion is clearly evinced by a rather landmark or bellwether case entitled Tennessee v. Garner, 1985. On a fall night in 1974, Officer Elton Hyman arrived at the scene of an alleged home break-in. He soon found Edward Garner, an eighth grade boy, weighing about 110 pounds, in the backyard of the home. Hyman later admitted that he was, quote, reasonably sure, end quote, that Garner was unarmed. Yet, as Garner attempted to climb a fence at the edge of the yard, Hyman shot him in the back of the head and killed him. Police later found a stolen purse and $10 in Garner's possession. Now, the rather amazing thing, and terrible thing, about Garner's death, which formed the basis of the aforementioned Supreme Court's decision in Tennessee v. Garner, is that Officer Hyman had every reason to believe that he acted lawfully when he killed an unarmed 15-year-old boy who'd committed a fairly minor act of theft. I'm reminded, uh, sadly, that nothing has really changed if you've been paying attention to the news in Chicago when the 13-year-old child was, was shot when his hands were up and was unarmed. Now, a Tennessee state law provided that, at the time, after an officer notifies a suspect of their intention to arrest a suspect, if, quote, he either flee or forcibly resist, the officer may use all the necessary means to effect the arrest, end quote. In other words, state law clearly permitted police to use deadly force against fleeing felony suspects. Nor was Tennessee particularly unusual in this regard. As uh, then Justice Sandra Day O'Connor noted in her dissenting opinion in Garner, in 1985, quote, nearly half the states still followed a venerable common law rule authorizing the use of deadly force if necessary to apprehend a fleeing felon, end quote. To dig deep a little here into the history of this, as a 1736 treatise described that common law rule, quote, it is no felony for a law enforcement officer to slay a suspect who shall either resist or fly before they are apprehended. End quote. Garner, which abandoned that common law rule in a six three decision, represents a quote high watermark, end quote, in the court's decisions governing use of force by police according to Garrett and Softon. Now, unlike future decisions, i.e. Graham, Garner laid down a fairly clear rule that police could follow when determining whether to use deadly force against the fleeing suspect or not. Where the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a threat of serious physical harm either to the officer or to others, it is not constitutionally unreasonable to prevent escape by using deadly force. Thus, if the suspect threatens the officer with a weapon, or there is probable cause to believe that he or she has committed a crime involving the infliction or threatened infliction of serious physical harm, deadly force may be used, if necessary, to prevent escape, and if, where feasible, some warning has been given. Now that is a lot of legal jargon to mean, basically, a police officer, if he or she believes, reasonably believes that a person, a perp, is a threat to others or has committed a crime. In their mind, they can shoot you or them to stop them from running. That's essentially what that means. Now, under Garner, in other words, police would no longer use their own judgments to decide whether to fire on a fleeing suspect. The court told police when they could use deadly force if the suspect quote, poses a threat of serious physical harm. End quote, if they threaten the officer with a weapon, or when the suspect committed a crime involving the infliction or threatened infliction of serious physical harm, and thus informed police that they could not use deadly force against other fleeing suspects, which was rather contradictory to what the standard was in many states at the time. To uh, rather some belated surprise, the impact of Garner on police behavior was swift and, and rather dramatic. According to a 1994 study by criminologist Abraham Tenenbaum, homicides committed by police dropped about 16% in the nation as a whole after Garner was decided. In states that previously followed the unconstitutional common law rule, quote, the reduction was approximately 24%, end quote. A more recent appeals court decision reinforces the proposition that clear legal rules are effective in reducing police violence. In the case Estate of Armstrong v. Village of Pinehurst, 2016, under the province Court, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit heard an allegation that police used excessive force when they repeatedly used a taser to subdue a mentally ill man, who died during his encounter with the police. Though the Fourth Circuit ruled in favor of the police, sadly, on the theory that the officers were protected under a doctrine known as qualified immunity we're going to definitely talk about qualified immunity in a future episode i assure you now the court at this time also laid down several limits on the use of tasers by police in this case quote a police officer may only use serious injurious force like a taser when an objectively reasonable officer would conclude that these circumstances present a risk of immediate danger that could be mitigated by the use of force end quote judge stephanie thacker wrote for her court she added that quote physical resistance is not synonymous with risk of immediate danger end quote certainly over the last few weeks i'm sure you would say that this has not applied to recent interactions between police and people like dante wright now continuing The Fourth Circuit oversees federal litigation in the states of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And in a 2017 report by Reuters, uh, it found that eight major cities in those states adopted stricter policies governing the use of tasers by police in the immediate wake of the Armstrong decision. These policies provided very, very successfully in reducing the use of tasers. For example, in Baltimore, police used tasers 47% fewer times last year than in 2015, according to records reviewed by roadies. Deployments fell 65% in Virginia Beach, 60% in Greensboro, North Carolina, 55% in Charleston, South Carolina, and 52% in Huntington, West Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, saw deployments plunge almost 95%. These facts notwithstanding, the Supreme Court moved away from giving clear guidance to police after Garner. Now, the facts of Graham v. Connor are as shocking as the facts are in Garner, even though they did not result in anyone's death. DeThorne Graham was a black man and a diabetic living in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1984, when he felt the beginning of an insulin reaction. Because such a reaction is treated with sugar, Graham asked a friend to drive him to a convenience store so he could buy some orange juice. But when they arrived at the store, there was a very long line. Fearing he would not be able to buy the juice fast enough, Graham immediately left and asked his friend to take him to a a friend's house instead. Now, a police officer witnessed Graham's very brief visit to the store and deemed it suspicious. So the cop pulled Graham and his friend over and would not let the two men go even after Graham's friend explained Graham's medical condition to the police officer. At one point, while Graham was waiting for the officer to let him go, he got out of the car, ran around it twice, and then passed out on the curb. Importantly, erratic behavior can be a symptom of a diabetic emergency. However, the police apparently took Graham's behavior as a sign of something sinister. After more officers arrived on the scene, Graham was handcuffed and forced face down into the car's hood. When Graham told the police to check his wallet for a decal indicating that he is diabetic, an officer told him to, quote, "Shut up." Now, the police mercifully and eventually let him go after they received a report that Graham hadn't done anything wrong at the convenience store. And yet, despite these rather disturbing facts, The Supreme Court's decision emphasized that police must deal with, quote, tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving, end quote, situations when they encounter someone like the Thorne Graham. Now, Graham didn't say that there are no limits on police conduct. In addition to holding that police must behave as a, quote, reasonable officer, end quote, would behave, the court also listed several factors that lower courts could consider when an officer is accused of excessive force including the severity of the crime at issue, whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others, and whether he is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. But these were simple factors that could be considered, not bright line rules that gave clear guidance to police about what kind of conduct is permitted. Again, reasonableness. And this depends all on the mindset of a given police officer at a given time furthermore the graham case itself suggests that these factors offer little protection for many victims of excessive force as these as this last year has proven after all graham himself committed no crime he posed no threat to anyone and he neither resisted arrest nor attempted to flee however the supreme court sent his case back down to a trial court for a second hearing and Graham ultimately lost his case. Now, one possible explanation for the lopsided vote in the Graham case, again, much of the decision was unanimous, is that the Supreme Court hands down decisions that are intended to be read and applied by lawyers and judges, not by police officers. Despite Graham's warnings uh, that judges should evaluate an officer's conduct without, quote, the 2020 vision of hindsight, end quote, courts are literally in the business of hindsight. Lawsuits, by their very nature, do not arise until after an alleged legal violation has allegedly occurred. So when an officer is hauled into court from allegations of excessive force, Graham reminds judges that they will probably know more about the circumstances that led to the allegation than the officer reasonably could have known at the time. All this notwithstanding, yet while Graham's holding may offer a useful reminder to judges, we also know that police departments use decisions like Graham to shape their own policies and training manuals. And the sort of open-ended legal standards that judges are accustomed to applying to individual cases do not provide adequate guidance to police officers, not in the least. A vague standard may be useful for a judge with a, a law degree and decades of legal experience and months and months to study the facts and you know court fees and everything, all these uh, people helping them read these things. But such standards are inadequate for a police officer who often for the first and only time in their career is caught in a dangerous situation with their service weapon drawn. Nevertheless, since Graham, the court has only doubled down on its preference for vague, flexible standards over clear legal rules governing how police officers behave. For instance, in Scott v. Harris in 2007, The court ruled in favor for police officers who, during a high-speed chase, rammed a suspect's car off the road and caused him serious injury. Yet, rather than evaluating this case under the fairly clear rule laid out in Garner – Garner, after all, was a case about when police can use potentially deadly force against a fleeing suspect, right? Scott arguably abandoned Garner's approach altogether. While the fleeing motorists attempt to craft an easy-to-apply legal test in the Fourth Amendment context is admirable, Justice Antonin Scalia wrote for the court, quote, In the end, we must still slosh our way through the fact-bound morass of reasonableness, end quote. Now, his, uh, his prose notwithstanding, uh, it is interesting to note that Scalia oftentimes would jump back and forth between uh, love for police officers and not. Now Scalia added, quote, whether or not Scott's actions constitute application of deadly force, all that matters is whether Scott's actions were reasonable, end quote. So certainly here he was on the side of the police. As one federal judge wrote just a few months after Scott was decided, under the Scott decision, quote, there is no Garner-Brightline test, end quote. There is only a vague reasonableness test. Now, one major problem with this approach is that it gives virtually no guidance to police departments, yet again, when they draft their own policies guiding the use of force, and it can lead to individual officers to guess what kind of behavior is acceptable if they are in a situation that might require force. Now, again, it's unlikely that a more rules-based approach like the one the court took in Garner could have actually saved George Floyd's life. Chauvin appears to have shown such extraordinary disregard for his department's policies that even his own police chief testified against him at his murder trial. However, clear rules can and do save lives. According to a Tenenbaum study of Garner, that decision, quote, reduced the total number of police homicides by approximately 60 a year, end quote. That's 60 people a year who would have died if the court hadn't given clear guidance to police officers. Now, I should mention, however, that, for instance, according to the Washington Post Police Gun Violence Database, in the last calendar year, nearly a 1,000 people have been shot and killed by police officers, and the majority of whom are people of color. So, certainly, while this kind of clarity can help, It certainly is not the underlying factor that belies the issue of policing and violence within it. So perhaps vagueness or clarity of rules are not the only problem. Perhaps the nature of policing in this country is itself the problem. Now, police reform may not happen anytime soon, but unless people have the discussion and policies are assessed and politicians are held to account and we look at the facts, it most likely never will. Now, thank you again for joining me today. I realized today was a rather charged conversation about, or at least an uh, analysis of how the Supreme Court has looked at policing uh, writ large. Um, barring any more craziness, uh, we're going to take a look at some climate change cases next week. Thank you again for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Connor. Stay safe, get vaccinated, wear a mask, and have a good night. This is the Highest Court Report, signing off.